Welcome to the Motherhood Reimagined podcast, where we celebrate all paths to motherhood. I'm your host, Sarah Kowalski. Whether you're contemplating becoming a single mother, trying to be one, or already raising kids, this is the place for inspirational stories, expert advice, and informative guides celebrating those who didn't follow the rules as they share the heartache and joys of their paths. Be informed, be inspired, because you do not need to feel alone. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. I just wanted to make a couple announcements before we get started. So first of all, I'm looking for more podcast guests. So if you're interested in being interviewed and sharing your story, please head on over to my podcast landing page. That's at motherhoodreimagined.com forward slash podcast dash home forward slash. Or you can just go to my website, motherhoodreimagined.com and follow the menu to podcast and find the sign up form. If you have ideas for guests too, please shoot me an email at sarah at motherhoodreimagined.com and let me know who you think would be a great guest. The other announcement is that the Tribe Signature Level membership is now live. You can go to my website again and follow the links for membership and go ahead and sign up. Right now I have a Thinkers Triers group and an egg donation, embryo donation support group. In these groups, you get weekly access to me via video call with the rest of the group, an online community to talk about what's coming up for you, as well as tons of done-for-you research and reflection exercises and really everything you need to kind of help you navigate this choice and this process without feeling alone. So I hope you will join me. Now let's get started with our guest. This week, I'm joined by my friend Joanna. I'm really excited to dive in. I know we're going to talk about her need to have a reduction of one twin who is genetically abnormal, as well as her choice to have two children, one via egg donor and one with her own eggs, and what that's been like for her. She has a really unique perspective, so I'm excited to dive in. Let's talk to Joanna. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Sarah. To get started, I always like to ask people, as a child, what did you expect for your life? And in particular, around kids and career and that sort of thing. I mean, I always expected to get married and have two kids. Like that was always the plan. I was an only child and did not like it. So having more than one was always super important to me. Career, both of my parents were career parents. And they didn't seem particularly happy, which they kind of weren't for multiple reasons. And so I think I started associating having a really intense career with being unhappy. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but yeah, so that, I think that that's as much as I can remember. Okay. And tell us a little bit about how life turned out and how you became a mother. Life turned out differently. <laughs> as it does. (laughs) Yeah. So I, you know, I had boyfriends, I was engaged once, but you know, nothing sort of worked. And I always had thought, well, if I'm single at 37, then I'll just have kids by myself. And then I sort of got close to 37 and it felt a whole lot younger than it had when I was 30. So I kept pushing it back, 38, Mm -hmm. 39. And then finally, right before my 40th birthday, I started realizing that I needed to really think seriously about whether I was going to do it. My mom's sister had had her kids naturally at 38 and 42. 
And so in my head, mm. that was sort of my genetics. So I was like, it's not going to be a problem. I can wait, right? Because this is how it is in my family. And so the first step was literally right before I turned 40, getting labs done. And I got the lab work back the night before my 40th birthday. And it was, and I remember I opened it, you know, I have Kaiser. So you get the email saying, you have new test results. And I opened it in a bar (laughs) and saw my FSH. And it wasn't pretty. And so that sort of, any ambivalence I had went away immediately. There was nothing sort of like the specter of not being able to get something you want to make it really clear whether or not you really want it. Mm. And so I sort of immediately found an acupuncturist who specialized in fertility and I took herbs and started taking thyroid supplement and just sort of really dove into the process starting with a few rounds of IUI. I'm 40 at this point. So a few rounds of IUI, which were all unsuccessful. And then I needed to have surgery for a fibroid because my doctor said, I'm not giving you hormones until we treat that. So I had surgery the day after Thanksgiving. I I didn't tell anyone in my family. My friends knew. In fact, I think you picked me up from that surgery, Sarah. I think I think I did, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I know I came to your house that night. <laughs> yeah, I think you picked me up from the hospital and picked me up from that surgery. And so I had to re- recover from that, which luckily my uterus did great. And <laughs> went to Hawaii for a week and went diving the whole time and then came back and did my first round of IVF and didn't produce. I was a low, it was a low producing cycle, but I did get four embryos. And because of my age, they just put them all in there. And I ended up pregnant with twins on my first cycle. So this is now January. My first IUI had been the previous April. Um, and in there, obviously, before the IUI, I had picked a sperm donor. I don't know if you wanted to talk about, I don't know, you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. How did you pick your sperm donor? How did you feel like that was, yeah, what it, what was important to you and how did you pick that donor? You know, I found picking a sperm donor really brings out your biases, And for me, I really wanted someone with sort of artistic and musical talent because I don't really bring that to the table. And I was like, you know, I don't really care kind of the way they gauge intelligence when you pick a sperm donor, sort of they ask you about, I think, like SAT scores and grade point average in school. And I was like, I don't care. You know, I was good at that stuff. I don't care about that. And so I I used what I now realize was a pretty small, it was a local San Francisco company that had fewer number of donors than I think if I used a larger sperm bank. And so that actually helped because my choices were more limited. But as it turned out, I did really care about sort of school grades and things and there weren't a lot of sort of non-Northern Europeans in the pool. So it didn't, I ended up with a list based on what I could find online of maybe eight. And then I went into the sperm bank where they had the binders with the full profile and just sat on the floor and read them all. And I kind of narrowed it down pretty quickly. I thought I only had access to a kid photo, but really I had access to an adult photo, which I didn't even see until I think after either I was pregnant or my son was born because I didn't, I didn't know it was there. I'm not sure had I seen the adult photo, whether I would have made the same mm. choice. But yeah, and I remember I was still internet dating. And so I would have like OkCupid okay, open and the sperm bank tab. And I was like toggling between them thinking like, this is really weird to be like picking <laughs> both of these things at the same time. Right. Interesting. 
in between my two kids, I got a letter from the sper- sperm bank that someone using that donor had been diagnosed with autism. Jeez. Oh, but I still ended up using him again for my second son because autism is so multifactorial. I thought I can't. And my first son clearly was not autistic. So I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go for it. Right, right. So can you go back to now the IVF cycle and how you said that they put, I think we got to the point where you said they put all of the embryos in, um, all four. Um, I'm assuming also at that point, they weren't really doing PGD or PGS testing. That clinic did not recommend that unless you were specifically looking for something that ran in your family. So it wasn't even presented as an option. Like it didn't even, and it didn't occur to me to ask just wasn't, it wasn't mentioned. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And so what happened after they put in those, in the four embryos? So two, I got pregnant with twins and in order to do genetic testing, testing for twins, you can't do the blood test. You actually have to do either CV, you have to do CVS if you want to do it early, which I did. And so at around 14 weeks, they did CVS and saw something on the scan at that time that made them concerned that one of them might be genetically abnormal. And when the results came back, that twin had trisomy 18, which is Edwards syndrome, which is known as a lethal anomaly. So they, uh, those babies are either stillborn or they die in the first year. They have you know, multiple medical problems across all body systems. So this was not a child that was ever going to live. And the doctor actually said, I've never seen this before in twins where one's healthy and one is not. And he actually recommended that I do nothing. He's like, most likely he'll die. He or she, I opted not to know the gender, will die in utero. But that was not something that I could cope with. So I um, elected to have a selective reduction of, of, the, of that twin which unfortunately also puts your pregnancy at risk up to 24 weeks. So I went back and acupuncture and herbs and sort of, you know, waited with fingers crossed for that 24th week to come. And I think it definitely impacted like how attached I became to the surviving baby and the pregnancy because I know what was going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. But in this case, I I definitely sort of kept my distance from the pregnancy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about how the reduction went and how that was emotionally for you? Yeah. I mean, I think as a physician, I can sort of switch into medical mode really easily. So for me, it just became sort of, okay, what do I need to do now from a medical perspective? I got the call when I was at work. I was in the middle of a meeting and I just went back and I finished the meeting and then I did go home early. But by the end of the weekend, I was like in sort of, you know, pragmatist mode. And all I wanted was the reduction to be done. And so I had to sort of beg them. I'm like, I want it done. I think they did it that next Friday. And so for Mm -hmm. me, I think, I don't even know if I ever cried. I think from, I think one of the things about having kids late is you tend to have a lot of friends who've also struggled with getting pregnant. And I, I myself, like two of my closest friends from high school had had to do multiple rounds of IVF. 
And so for me, I, I couldn't muster up a lot of sort of pity for myself because I only got to have like one healthy baby. Like here I was one round of IVF. I had one healthy baby. Like I couldn't get that upset that I also couldn't have two. Like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't find that within myself. It just was like, well, this is unfortunate. And the most unfortunate thing was, you know, putting, putting the other baby at risk. And I think Mm -hmm. I had been ambivalent about twins as a single mom because it seemed so overwhelming. So it wasn't that I was relieved. It was just reality. And I just wanted it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to move on really as quickly as I could. Right, right. And had you been, since you didn't find out until 14 weeks that one of them had the trisomy, had you been telling people that you were pregnant with twins? Yeah, everyone knew, including my family. Wow. And how was that? Yeah, I can imagine that would have been really uncomfortable afterwards, having to explain to people and people not knowing. And how how did you deal with that? I'm trying to remember. I think to some people, I just sent an email saying like, this is what's happened. I don't remember how I handled it at work because I had told a lot of people at work. And I think like other people would find out and say, oh, you're having twins. And I would say, no, there's just one now. And I just, I think I just told everyone right away just to have it be done. And then, and then it was done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit then, I know you had a second child. So can you tell us and that you had kind of always thought about having a second child from, yeah. from the time you were a little kid. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made the choice to have a second and what that process was like as well? Yeah. I mean, my first child was not, has never been sort of an easy child. So the idea of even having to ponder it was really overwhelming. And I first went back to the fertility doctor when he was nine months old for the first conversation. But I was at that point had turned 42. And I knew that I just didn't have like, there was no luxury of thinking I would wait a few years. Like if I wanted to do it, I had to do it. And so I just sort of, again, went into sort of practical mode and was like, okay, here we go. And it was exhausting because I would take time off work to drive, to go to the doctor. I think we started with rounds of IUI again when he was 11 months I mean, I was back work, you know, full-time work and I would just take time off and drive to the doctor and drive back and then pick him up from daycare and the IUI again that did not work and then opted for IVF. And I, I took a few months off, I think, to do some prep with, you know, HEA and acupuncture again. And then that spring, at which point I was 43, started IVF again. I just remember that being a time of like great fatigue. Like it's always tiring, but that year was just exhausting. I just couldn't remember like lying on my kitchen floor after doing shots. Like I put Oliver to bed and then I would go, you know, shoot myself up five times with hormones and then just like lie on the kitchen floor and think like, this is really, really hard and then get up and go to work. And the first round ended up getting converted to an IUI. And then this, I switched doctors. Next round was really successful. I got a lot, like 12 eggs out of me. And I did genetic testing on those and they were all bad. And I remember so many of my conversations, like I'm always standing at work, like out in a hallway, having these really personal conversations, talking to my doctor and saying, you know, have you known people my age that have gone on to have a second kid? She was like, I need to think about that. She said, certainly, you know, at 41 and 42 year olds, I'm not sure about 43 year olds. 
Yeah, because at that point I was 43. And she said, I do want to bring up the idea of donor eggs. She said, because what's happens when people all their money trying to get pregnant with their own eggs and they're out of money and they don't have a baby. And I can remember thinking at that point, I think I was just so exhausted and I was so tired of the needles. Like I had three sharp mm. containers of needles at that point because they had, I was on like more shots than I had been when I got pregnant with my first son. I remember thinking, I just want someone to hand me a baby and I do not care where it comes from. I do not care. Like it was so clear at that moment that the <laughs> genetic connection had become irrelevant. And mm. it, I thought about adoption. I looked into adoption, but that process is really long. And I did like the idea of being, of, of sort of owning the pregnancy and because I knew you, the donor egg idea was, had become something that didn't seem odd to me at all. And so I sort of switched mm-hmm. gears immediately with the same clinic that I'd gotten pregnant with Oliver. But it was like so many more hoops, right? Like then you have to pick an egg donor and you have to go through all these appointments. And the egg donor selection process was interesting. And I ended up using the, the bank at that, at that clinic. And as soon as I saw her, I I looked at some national banks and some other banks. And as soon as I saw this donor, I was like, that's her. And then I read about her and I was like, yep, done. And then they make you meet with a social worker. And I met with a social worker. So the the donor selection went really pretty fast for you? Or it was just that you looked through lots of profiles and when you saw the donor that you ended up using, it was like really clear right away. Like, I think I found out that my last round of IVF had yielded no embryos in like early to mid August. And I was pregnant by, I had the embryo put in in Halloween. So I guess it was pretty quick. I think I just, I did, I spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time in a short period of time looking through Mm -hmm. different profiles. As soon as I saw the one that I used and read about her, I was crystal clear that that was the one. And um, mm. I used a frozen, not a fresh, because I only wanted one more. Oh, right. Um, I didn't need to have mm-hmm. leftovers, although I still pay for them to be frozen. Right. <laughs> but right. I can't quite part with them, even though I'm not going to have a third child. And so, yeah, so they, um, I picked her and they, you know, defrosted and we had a lot of good looking embryos and I got pregnant the first one. They only put in one. I'm like, you're only putting in one. And I got, you know, I put him in on a hall, put him in on Halloween. I did not know the gender at the time, and yeah, pregnant immediately. Awesome. And so, what was when you say you saw the donor and you kind of knew immediately? Do you know what your criteria were that you were looking for egg donor, and and how did that differ? Do you think in terms of looking for? A sperm donor. I mean, I think because I, I'm like, I nailed down the art and the music already. So I think I was just looking for someone, you know, smart that looked relatively like me so that he might appear to be so that wouldn't it would one could think he was genetically mine. Mm-hmm. And so it was mainly her smile. She had this big wide smile. And I thought you look like someone I would want to be friends with. You look like someone I would trust with mm-hmm. my kids. And then I read her profile. And I was like, I really want to be friends with you now. <laughs> and she also was very athletic, which is not something I, that I brought to the table. So I thought, well, that could be interesting to have an athletic <laughs> child. <laughs> but mainly, I just wanted someone like I think one of my criteria for both egg and sperm, I wanted sort of a happy person like and I'm kind of a like a less so now, but I always could have classed myself as kind of a moody introvert. So I'm like, what would it like I wanted like happy go lucky donors. And so she was oldest of six and just 
I just liked the way she thought about things. She seemed like a really lovely human. Nice. And how, what was it like trying to decide to have a second child via egg donation when the first child had been genetically related to you? Do you think that brought up anything for you? It definitely took a minute. I remember, I'm sure we talked about it. And I know that I posted on the national SMC forum and discovered that quite a few women, because you know women tend to wait until they're older to have kids on their own, had done the exact same thing and had to, go, had to use an egg donor for their second child. And they all said exactly what you had said, which is you don't care, right? You have your baby and the genetic connection is irrelevant. And I believed that. And so I don't think, I think because I was so tired and I, and I think I, you know, adoption would have like anything. I just, I was like, I just want the baby. Like I just, I don't want to work so hard. Like I just want it done. And mm-hmm. I don't think, I think because I had one that was genetically mine, the idea that the second one wouldn't be, I did think about how I would explain it. I was, I was most, I wasn't worried about how I would feel. It was more sort of, would the second child feel like he wasn't really mine or feel somehow lesser than my first one? Like, how will I handle making sure that he feels like he's no different? That was sort of my mm-hmm. only concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember having those conversations with you. And I think it's different too, like when you're, yeah, when you sort of carry the baby too, right? When you're pregnant. I mean, we talked a lot about epigenetics. I mean, there's, I think that was one of the things that appealed to me about having, using an egg donor versus adoption is actually carrying and giving birth to the child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And so then I, I just think it's fascinating to ask women I think women who are contemplating egg donation, their biggest concern often is whether or not they're going to bond to the kid. And then secondarily, I think, or for some, it's also about concerns for the child in terms of their, their origins and that kind of thing. But in terms of bonding to your two children, did you see any difference between it? And would, would you say anything that there is different around using an egg donor versus having a genetic child? I did actually have very different experiences, but not in the direction you would think. It actually took me a minute (laughs) to bond with Oliver. (laughs) I think part of it was the circumstances (laughs) of the pregnancy. Part of it was because he was a really colicky, cranky newborn. Part of it was I think I had untreated postpartum depression, whereas Henry was immediate. And that could have, again, been partially because he spent five days in the NICU. So he seemed almost sort of more... I don't know what the word would be, fragile, precious, something. But I bonded with Henry immediately. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt super connected to Henry in a way that just took longer with my older one. Hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So I think, yeah, so I think having, you know, being genetically connected does not necessarily equal easy bonding. I think it's, 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 it's much bigger than that. Yeah. When you say it's much bigger than that, what would you would point to anything that you think it's related to? I mean, I know you pointed to like having a difficult pregnancy and Henry being in the NICU at first, anything else that comes up that you think of? I mean, I think to some extent it depends on the personality of you and the personality of your baby. Henry was a very easy baby. Oliver was a very hard baby. I was in better shape and I got myself more. With Oliver, I don't know what I was thinking. Like I didn't hire a postpartum doula. Like my parents didn't live there when I had Oliver. Like I literally was by myself, which is looking back just insane. I had a lot more help when Henry (laughs) was born. And I think there was a, and I didn't have to go back to work right away. I'm like with Oliver. So I felt a lot less stressed. 
So I think it was a combination of his temperament and my temperament just fit together better. And I remember with Oliver, the time change happened like a week after he was born. And the end of daylight savings is my least favorite day of the whole year. I loathe it. (laughs) And I just remember like sitting in bed with my colicky kid who had so much trouble nursing and be, I was in pain and like being dark at 4.30 and just the anxiety that I experienced with him. It was the rainy, cold winter, my maternity leave. I mean, it was just awful. Whereas Henry... We had these like blissful summer afternoons, you know, napping in the broad daylight. Like it was just such a different Mm. experience. And I'm glad, I'm glad that I got to have like a happy newborn experience (laughs) the second time around. Cause I just remember like my, my newborn experience, the fourth trimester with Oliver just feels dark to me in every way. Mm. Mm. And what advice would you give women for that fourth trimester sort of first few months period of time? to help prepare like prepare yourself as a single mom what things could you put in place or what do you wish you had done yeah to help yourself during that time you know we have a mutual friend who gave me great advice after oliver was born she said if you can throw money at a problem and make it go away do it <laughs> <laughs> and i really like took that advice to heart like i didn't even have a doula but you were with me when i had Oliver, Mm -hmm. I didn't even hire a doula with him. Like I labored at home by myself, which like, what was I I thinking? I don't know. (laughs) But like buy yourself all of the help that you can. Get a doula, get a postpartum doula, line it up ahead of time. If you can get an au pair or live in childcare, do it. Just like make your life easy. Like the meal, the either do a meal train or the meal plans. Like Montreal was still in business when I had my kid. Like make your life as easy as you possibly can. Get all the help that you can afford or that can be provided to you by family and friends. Because it's very, particularly with your first child, it's extremely disorienting. Like it's just, it's because your hormones are going crazy. I mean, it's so, and you're exhausted. For I mean, with a second kid, like you're already so tired from your first kid that the lack of sleep doesn't hit you as hard. It's much less disorienting the second time <laughs> around. Like you're just, you're just, you just know what to expect. But the first time I just remember thinking like, what have I done? Like, what have I done here? Mm-hmm. How am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. Cause I was alone and that's sort of, right. that was the worst part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's really helpful for women to hear. And so how have you managed to build support for yourself? How did you build that support network when Oliver was first born and then after you had two? And what advice would you give to women about building sort of longer term support, not just the like immediate postpartum? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky with Oliver. Like I had, like my work was really, really supportive, both my boss and my team, which makes a huge difference. I had, I um, became part of a mom's group both times, which was huge. I'm no longer in touch, interestingly, with the mom's group for my second one because it's different the second time. Like you don't, you somehow don't need it as much. And then, but I am still in touch with everybody from the first and that, that made a difference. My mom and stepfather moved up when Oliver was about nine months old or maybe eight months old. So they helped out a lot, but it is very isolating, especially like I'm a super introvert. And so that I found that to be the really difficult part of parenting is you're sort of torn between wanting support and then not really feeling like you want to always be around people because you're always around this tiny person who constantly needs things from you. And Mm -hmm. so I always found that to be a hard line to walk. And I think 
I found that making new friends after I had Oliver, like except for maybe my mom's group was difficult because my emotional bandwidth was so limited. So like connecting with new people was just too exhausting for me. So I don't necessarily know that I'm a good, I mean, I think you're a much better example of how to build community than I was. And I think now, you know, I just, as you know, moved to a cheaper part of California last summer And I don't really have many friends here. Like I have a couple, but I'm mostly by myself. And then I talk to my au pair, (laughs) but that's kind of it. And that's honestly like now that my kids are, they're two and a half and five and a half and both really verbal. I'm like so exhausted by them that I don't really want to talk to anybody, (laughs) which sounds crazy because I don't really have any support. Like I, but I just like can't, I just need my introvert time so much. Mm -hmm. So it is, I mean, I think I also have just gotten used to the isolation and I think now that they are, but it's also sort of now that they are verbal, it's a little less lonely than having infants and the pre-verbal kid. So it's like they suck up all my introvertness. They don't necessarily provide me with support, but at least it's conversation of some form or fashion. <laughs> right. But I actually like <laughs> spending my days by myself. Right. Yeah. I I feel similarly. But it is hard, like when you have a challenge or even like yesterday, I did a bunch of planting in my front yard and there was like no one to tell me that it looks pretty. I'll be like, Oliver, mm-hmm. did you see the plants? Uh-huh. There's like no one to tell you that something <laughs> you did looks nice. And if right. something's hard, you kind of have to figure it out by yourself or you find like a website. A lot of my mm-hmm. support comes from websites. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of bad. I feel like I'm very sort of out of practice in the social realm because I just don't do it so much anymore, especially now that I'm sort of on hiatus from work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, do I know how to have a conversation? And then I find that as a single parent, to some extent, you get a little bit left out of the normal family trappings because people don't really know what to do with you. Like, how do you invite a single mom to a dinner party? Mm -hmm. Right? How do you go on vacation with a single mom? Because like, who's the husband going to talk to? So it's... Yeah, I, I definitely feel that. And can you talk a little bit about like the process of returning to work with... I know that that was, you mentioned it a couple of times in reference to Oliver, and I don't know really how that evolved with Henry, but can you talk about that? I know you returned to work when Oliver was really young. How did that go and what did you, um, how did you make that work and what were the things you sort of did to make it feel possible or to survive it, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I, so I went back, you know, I worked for the school district, so we got a lot of leave and I'd just been hoarding it. So I was able to go back for a couple of months at three days and a few months at four days and then full time at five days. I mean, at nine months. And I hadn't planned childcare before I had, I had him, which in retrospect is insane. So I ended up going the nanny route, but I really wanted him in daycare because I wanted him since at that point he was an only, and at that point I thought he might stay an only child. I wanted him kind of socialized from a really young age. So I did a nanny share and then he went into daycare at maybe nine and a half months, but only four days a week because my mom had a day with him, which was really great. He had grandma day on Fridays. But I think, and I really couldn't have asked to go back to sort of a more accommodating, kinder job, but it was stressful, mainly the sleep. Because I was, you know, I had the type of role there, you know, I I led a team and I had to be in meetings and I had to be functional. And I remember sitting in meetings the first few months 
and thinking, I don't actually know what people are talking about. Like I understand words, but I don't know what's going on. And I would just, I just faked it. I faked it for months Mm. and it was just so hard to track conversations. I was so tired and I sleep trained. So he went, you know, he's, he slept through the night starting by six months. He was sleeping through the night, but like that getting him to that point was really, 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 really stressful. And just not having an, you know, I know having no one to, you know, no one else was, and he was very formula fed because I had so many nursing shows. Someone else could buy middle of a bottle, but there wasn't anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I just, and so, and then the exhaustion definitely like affected my relationship with him for sure. And just the stress of having to manage everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was really hard. And with Henry, you know, they, they did a reorg. I'd switched jobs. They did a reorg. So I basically, for all intents and purposes, like lost my job six months pregnant, although I worked until I had him, but then I had a severance, a nice severance. So I didn't have to think about going back with Henry and it made a big difference. Like I would wake up exhausted and be like, eh, like I don't have to mm-hmm. hold a conversation. <laughs> like I don't have to make sense because my other child is two. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I can a blithering idiot and it doesn't matter and that was a huge relief mm-hmm. and I, I've been reflecting a lot recently on like how maternity leave is structured in this country and the real impact that that has on the newborn phase mm. if you have to go back to work right can you say more about what you think that impact is I mean I think you know I was a, I would have been a much like I was so much more relaxed with Henry and again second kid so it's not quite fair to compare but knowing that I didn't have to go back to work you know, knowing that the sleep didn't matter as much. I just sort of rolled with things a lot more, you know, getting Oliver out the door to daycare. You know, I didn't have to get myself ready first. Mm-hmm. So if we had a hard morning, because I wasn't going to be late to work and it didn't matter what time I dropped him off. So I think just parenting from a much more relaxed place where you weren't like racing out the door and then racing home to get dinner and then thinking about if you had to check your email and then worrying if you're going to get enough sleep. And it just, you know, it makes you, it made me really tense. Mm-hmm. I was a really tense first time mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, like many are, because you also don't know what you're doing. But I really think the work played a huge role in that. And many, most other people in my mom's group, I was the only one that went back that soon. Mm. Everyone else had like five, six months off. Wow. How many months did you have off? Like four? No, I took, I went back to work at three, for, but only three days a week. Wow. But even still. And then four days a week and then full time by nine months. Wow. But still, yeah, three months. Yeah, I mean, I was. Yeah, you that's know, crazy. And I was super non. I was really not functional. It was. It was just really hard. Yeah. So when you look back over how you became a mother, do you have any regrets about your path or anything that happened? You know, I think about that sometimes and it's sort of hard. I mean, sometimes I think, oh, I wish I'd done it sooner or, oh, I wish I'd frozen my eggs. But the truth is like, even if I had waited maybe one more month to do IVF for my first son, any single difference, any single difference would have meant a different egg Mm -hmm. got fertilized, right? Any single difference would have meant I would have a different kid right now if I had been able to get my own eggs at all. I mean, was I really lucky? Like I had basically one good egg. Mm -hmm. And if I'd done anything differently, it would be a different child. If I'd done it earlier, it would have been a different child. And if I'd done it earlier, I probably never would have gone the donor route. I wouldn't have Henry. Like it's really, it's hard to think about not having your own kids, as you know. Mm -hmm. Like you can't, it's, you can't even wrap your head almost around the question. Right. I mean, in a way, I think 
about egg freezing, it seems nice because it would have made it meant a lot less stress. Mm-hmm. So when I eventually got to the part where I had kids by myself, the conception part would have been less stressful. But again, different kids. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I can't, it's hard to entertain. It's hard to even entertain the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. But yeah, it's, it is fascinating. But I think when you're in it, it's, it's really hard. So I think that sort of finding that trust of that it's working out the way it's meant to, but it's so hard when you're in it. Right. And I think, you know, there's a, I think there's a, there's a blessing about having been able to do a lot of things before you have kids because mm-hmm. you don't, you know, you don't feel like you miss all these things now that I'm basically all I do is kids stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't do grown up stuff anymore. I'm like, yeah, but I did grown up stuff for four years and I did a lot of it. Like I really took advantage of that time to do a lot of things. So I don't feel like I'm missing out on things now. Right. And I'll do them again, but there'll be a chunk of time where I don't do them at all. And that doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a huge bonus to having kids later in life. You either have to get your, you know, you either do it after your kids are older, if you had kids really young or kind of before. So I think both, both have advantages. So what would you say is the most surprising thing to you about how things turned out? I mean, random things pop into my head when you ask me that. I mean, one of them is the parenting is an introvert thing, which I'd never considered until I had kids, like an added layer of difficulty. Another part, when before I had kids, I used to think it was all nurture, Mm. right? You see kids out and you're like, oh, those parents. (laughs) And now that I have kids, I'm like, nope, it's all nature. You can certainly, as someone said, smooth their edges. It's not that, I mean, you have a big impact on your kids. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to imply that you don't. I mean, certainly particularly the stuff you do zero to five, you know, the exposure, the reading, like all of that's really important, but they kind of are who they are. The temperament is sort of there. Tendencies are there. And your sort of role is to kind of, you know, the positive tendency to kind of really support it and the tendency of life art to support them into figuring out how to, you know, live a little bit differently. But they really, especially, it's interesting, like having two kids and then having one, you know, my older one's exactly like my father, for better, for worse. And then the <laughs> younger one is so different. And, you know, he's not related to me. And I'm like, in so many ways, like, you're so lucky, like, you're not related to me and you don't. I can see already that you've not inherited X, Y, and Z and lucky you. Mm -hmm. But it's just sort of fascinating kind of really understanding how much is nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, actually, it's reminding me of a conversation we had about the difference between your relationship with Henry and Oliver. And you said that Henry in many ways was sort of like a blank slate, like you and your family couldn't sort of project things onto him. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So for my mother, Oliver is like round two, because I think she has some regret. And so it's sort of like a second chance. And I remind, he is a lot like me. And so she, I think, really enjoys grandmothering him. And, And I don't see that connection to Henry in the same way, because I think that genetic piece is really important to her. But yeah, Henry is sort of just a surprise. Like I know what I know from the egg donor profile. But yeah, he doesn't have any family stuff he doesn't remind anyone of anyone, right? Like he's just his own. He's like, oh, isn't that interesting? He can do that thing that like we can't do in our family. <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't have, he almost doesn't have that pressure, mm-hmm. which I imagine will be nice for him as he gets older. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I'm like, wow, you're coordinated. Mm-hmm. Ooh, what's that like? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's very cool. What advice would you give someone if they were struggling to become a mother or in your, I think, facing that question of having one genetically and one not genetically related child or even the question of whether or not to have two kids? Yeah. I mean, the two kid thing is hard. Like I was lucky. I mean, I just haven't found there to be any difference in reality. And I don't know anyone who's used an egg donor who's ever felt like it wasn't their child. I would say mm-hmm. if you want to have two kids and egg donation is the way to get there, get there. It, it honestly doesn't matter to me at all. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for representing that because I feel like that's part of my like part of my mission in life. Yeah. So I, I just like to people to hear it from so many different people in so many different ways. I just I actually feel like immense gratitude because that technology, as you know, has not always been available. I mean it used to be that if you couldn't use your own eggs, you didn't have kids. So I I am mm-hmm. extremely grateful that that exists as an option. I'm extremely grateful to my egg donor. I mean, I just I I feel I feel very lucky. Mm-hmm. I I can agree with that. Um, and what advice would you give someone if they were deciding whether or not to have two kids? Yeah, I mean that's a hard one because there's you know a friend gave me advice thinking about, you know, the early years are hard, like zero to five, zero to six. I'm upping it to six now that I have a five and a half year old and it's still hard. Zero to six, is <laughs> it's hard. And there's sort of no getting around the fact that small children take a lot of energy. My friend said, you know, it's not, it's, you know, you're having your kids not because of their early years, but because of who you want to have Thanksgiving with when you're 70. And it's true. Like no one's mm-hmm. like, I know what I want is, you know, a whole bunch of toddlers. Like that's, you know, that's just difficult. And so for me, I asked myself the question, you know, in five years, what will I wish I'd done? And the answer was very clear. Like I wish that I had, I would have wished that I'd had a second one and just dealt with the difficulty. It is really, it's really hard. Like it's exhausting. I don't regret it at all, but you have to kind of be able to, to sit with that for a long period of time. Um, you know, and parenting a preschooler when you have a, a baby is, you know, is challenging. And I think, you know, there's the financial piece. You know, I had financial help from family, which really made all the difference, both being able to afford doing IVF a second time and then, you know, covering sort of education costs. And I think, you know, money is definitely not everything, but I think asking yourself, you know, is two kids going to stretch me so thin that I feel such a high level of stress every day that it just impacts, you know, my mental health? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a reality that, that you would definitely have to consider. And then thinking about help, you know, will you have family help, friend help, what your support system look like and being really clear with everybody. I, mean, I think it's easy to assume that you would get a lot of help, but that doesn't mean everyone's prepared to give the help that you might think. So I think being clear, like what kind of help could would you be able to provide with me and kind of getting that all out in the open ahead of time? And then financially, could you buy more help if you needed to? You know, and a pair is a great thing when you have two kids. You know, it's kind of cost effective when you have more than one kid. And having live having someone live with me while there's challenges to that is really helpful as, you know, just knowing there was backup 
you know, if there was an emergency and there was another adult in the house. So I think like really planning through on a day-to-day basis, like how it will work and getting it all clear ahead of time and having conversations ahead of time, you know, running the numbers, you know, I mean, I moved to a totally different city for cost of living reasons. Cause I realized, you know, having two kids in the Bay area, like, what am I doing here? Hmm. So I moved to Sacramento and it's just, it took so much of the financial pressure off of me and it, I'm a happier person. I'm a better parent for it. Like, can you move, right? If it's expensive, just give it a little Awesome. Awesome. That's really great. What do you like least about being a mother? Mm. I mean, I think it's just, I think what a lot of parents, even, you know, married couples would say is you kind of lose, you lose yourself there for a while when they're really little, because it's kind of all you do is, you know, they need you for everything. They want a piece of you at all times. So I think it's sort of the lack of space, (laughs) the lack of freedom is the hardest. But I think of it, you know, like I plan to live to my mid to late 80s. That's my plan, knock on wood. And so, you know, they're young for, you know, a decade of that stay, even less. Like that's a really small amount of my life that I don't have a lot of freedom. And it's, you know, small price Mm -hmm. to pay for having kids. But I think the Mm -hmm. just being kind of on lockdown for years is hard. (laughs) Right. And what would you, what do you love most about being a mother? Actually, what I love most is what is this, because I was an only child, watching the sibling bond is so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, I don't, you know, my baggage is around being an only, but I don't have older or younger child baggage. So I don't sort of identify with one of them more or less in that way. My baggage is like, you will love each other and get along because I didn't have that option. (laughs) But watching them together is actually my favorite part. And when I hear little conversations from another room where they're being cute together, um, and when my little one looks at me just out of the blue and goes, I really love Oliver a lot. Like that's like Mm. my, that's just my favorite thing in the world. Mm. That's nice. And have you started having the conversation with them yet about them having a different, like the egg donor conversation or how that's different for them? Or is that, are you waiting on that? No, like Henry just hasn't, it just, he's never asked about the dad thing. Oliver's asked about the dad thing and I sort of explained it to him and he hasn't really asked since. He's kind of like that though. He's just like, okay, that's the reality moving on. But no, I haven't really talked to Henry about it because he just, he hasn't even shown interest in the dad part yet. Mm -hmm. So I just haven't gone there. But I think it's, I mean, it's just about, you know, with the sperm donor thing, I just explained it in a really matter of fact way. And I got some books and was like, and this is how it is in our family. And that, and he didn't, that was just, that was sufficient for him. Mm -hmm. Mm Cool. Cool. Any other advice you would give to women who are contemplating single motherhood or even in the midst of it? Mm, You know, yeah, I think, I mean, I always laugh when people talk about self-care. I think we all do. We're like, self-care, you're hilarious. I have small children. But honestly, like I can remember when I lived in Oakland and I had Henry and I was working in a co-working space that was across the street from the Oakland Y. And, you know, the Y is expensive in the Bay Area. And I didn't join because I'm like, I can't afford it. And in retrospect, I think, what an idiot. Like of all the ways to spend $90 a month, like exercising at that point would have been really, really good. Like it would have really changed a lot of things. So I think, you know, your sanity is really paramount and doing things that help, you know, for me, sleep training was a big piece of that. 
I'm like, if I'm not sleeping, forget it. So sleeping and exercising, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that at home too, but, you know, paying for childcare so that you can, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of exercise. So yeah, going to the movies is good, but getting regular exercise by the most important do for yourself or whatever, you know, your self-care regimen is. And, you know, invest in that because you don't want to kind of look back at those years. I mean, you always look back at the little years as being hard, but they don't, but they'll, but they are easier if you are taking care of yourself. Mm. When you're working nine to five, that's really difficult. It's really hard, but try to figure out ways to be really good to yourself. It really is critical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's phenomenal advice. Thank you. Um, And anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Go for it. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just just do it. Just say yes. Do it. You can do it. You can do anything. Yeah. I guess we haven't really talked. Yeah. What do you feel? How do you feel about being a single mom? What's your thought now that you're several years into it? I mean, it just always cracks me up when people are like, oh my God. And my husband was out of town this weekend or, you know, like it was so hard. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. It is. (laughs) It, It gives you great, like, like you feel very powerful. It's a very empowering thing because you're like, I can, I can do anything. Like I can do anything. Mm-hmm. I have visions of like, what if I met someone and he wanted to adopt my kids? Could I ever feel like they're not only my kids? Mm-hmm. Right? Like if you weren't there for like zero to six, you get to lay claim. Like I did all the hard work. <laughs> they are mine. <laughs> about that now I'm like could I ever like allow anyone to 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 claim parentage to them I don't know Mm -hmm. but it just kind of makes you feel like a badass because you are yeah yeah I I feel that way but (laughs) yeah that's very cool okay awesome I think that's everything thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story I think it's a very unique story that's wonderful for people to hear so I really appreciate it thanks for having me If you liked today's episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe and leave a review. I so appreciate your support to spread the word about this project. If you'd like to hear more about my journey, please read my memoir, Motherhood Reimagined, When Becoming a Mother Doesn't Go as Planned. It's available everywhere books are sold. Bye for now.